Morning. I'm John, if we haven't met. Have a look at God's Word together this morning. Reading from Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through to chapter 9, verse 1. You can follow along on the screen behind me while we go. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do, you, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along, along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Or what can anyone, or in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be here again today. Just letting you know, if you do have a service sheet, the passage we're looking at today is from the beginning of chapter one, uh, of verse one, sorry, of chapter eight through to chapter nine, verse one. So we'll look at that in a moment. But let's pray and ask that God would help us understand his word. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you so much uh, that you are a good God, that as we've been singing about this morning, um, that you are our good, good Father. Lord, we celebrate that and we thank you that we can see that clearly, uh, who you are through what you've done in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that this morning that you would help us see Jesus clearly, that our hearts and that our eyes would be open to who he is and that that would be directly impacting our lives. We pray for help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So throughout this series, uh, we've been asking our friends and our family the question, who is Jesus? Or finish this sentence, Jesus is. And uh, many of you have sent in your answers as you ask your friends and family. I've enjoyed asking the people in my life as well about this question. And I realized too that as I talked to my non-Christian friends about Jesus, that it wasn't as scary as I thought it would be. And they weren't as put off by me as I thought they would be either. Now, thanks if you sent them in your answers in this morning. Uh, I thought what we would do is we finish off this series called Jesus is Better is I'd give you some of the highlights that we had from this series. So the top eight answers uh, that I have ranked in no particular order here this morning, and I should just say some of these answers are from adults and some are from kids, and I bet you can guess which ones are which. Okay, so coming in at number one, this was it. Jesus is a historical and political figure who was assassinated by the leaders of his own people. Number two... Jesus is, I don't know, maybe a perfect person who is in the sky. Number three, Jesus is okay, I guess. Number four, my personal favorite, Jesus is not a savior. He's just a man who built the earth. Number five, Jesus is someone who people believe is good. Number six, Jesus is an example we should look up to. Number seven, Jesus is important to me. And number eight, Jesus is worth giving up my whole life. Thanks again if you uh, sent these answers in uh, or just sent answers in. Let me encourage you as well, if you were planning to have this conversation with friends and family about who Jesus is, let me encourage you to do so. If your plan was, okay, I want to do it before the week's out, right? We'd still love to hear from you. So let me encourage you in this space. But it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, as we look at all of these answers here, it's interesting that as we do, the people that we speak to do have in some ways some sense of who Jesus is, right? I mean, even number three, Jesus is okay, I guess, or number four, Jesus is not a savior, just a man who built the earth. In some sense, even they have an idea of who Jesus is. Right, They have this kind of vague picture, but it's clear that as we look at these answers that a lot of these people have some sort of unclarity as well. Right, They might have an idea about Jesus, but there's some sense where there's not a clear picture here. There's some clarity missing. And this is really important to make sure that we get this right, because if Jesus is who he says he is, this answer to this question has the impact on eternity, right? This answer to this question can affect our eternities. And so it's important that when we look at who Jesus is, there's not this sense of unclarity, but this sense that we can actually see who he really is. And so this morning, as we come to the end of this series called Jesus is Better, Um, We want to get to the end of this question. We want to ask this question, okay, who is Jesus? How are we supposed to finish the sentence, Jesus is? And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish off this section in Mark. We're going to look at Mark, and as we do, we will find the answer to this question, who is Jesus? And we see this as we pick the story up from uh, from chapter 8, verse 1. This is how he begins. During those days, another large crowd gathered. 
Since they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave, them to, uh, he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Okay, so, so who is Jesus? How are we supposed to answer the sentence or finish the sentence Jesus is? Well, to do that, Mark is going to show us here today, and he's going to show us three groups of people. He's going to show us firstly the blind, then the blurry, and then, and I'm really excited about this because I don't normally do this, the believing. Three Bs today, the blind, the blurry, and the believing. And in this section here, first of all, we see the blind. And as we look at this passage, we start to see who Jesus is. Now, here in this first section, Mark is setting for us some context. And as we hear this story, doesn't it sound like a story we've heard before? If you were here a few chapters ago, Jesus fed the 5,000. Right, And it sounds pretty much word for word exactly the same. Except the difference here is who Jesus is speaking to, who he's feeding. Before it was the Jews, now he's in Gentile country feeding the Gentiles. Jesus is showing that he hasn't come for a specific race or religion. He has come for the whole world so that the whole world can see him. Now, as we hear this story... Regardless of whether you have heard the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 or 4,000 a thousand times in your life, as we finish this story, we do have to see that what this shows us about Jesus is still really big, right? He feeds 4,000 people. He takes seven loaves and a few sardines and he spreads it around 4,000 people. He does something only God can do in this moment. And as we see this, right, we still have to see this is amazing. This is truly incredible what God is doing here, that Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. Now, if we can feel the sense of what he's doing here, I think it's going to help us. So like even today, if someone came to church today and looked around at us, I mean, we've got what, maybe 150 of us still here. Uh, Kids have gone away. It's just us left uh, now. If someone came along and said, okay, what have you got for morning tea? Now, I know that uh, our morning tea team does a really good job, but it's just to tie us over to lunch. And so someone came and took what we had for morning tea and then went, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to make that last the whole lunch. We're going to make that go the distance. And so every sausage roll that you grabbed, I don't know if we're having that today. I don't want to get your expectations up. But every sausage roll you grab, just another one appears. Right? I mean, if we could even just feel that today, if we all had lunch, were fed lunch from what we have for morning tea, even today, we would be amazed by what's going on. And there's 150 of us. Now, now what Jesus is doing is bigger than that. He's taking seven loaves of bread and a few sardines, and he's feeding 4,000 people. 
right? Until they are all, until they all eat and are all satisfied. This is truly amazing. This is something that only God can do. So, what reaction then are we expecting? What reaction are we expecting from people who just see Jesus feed 4,000 people? I think we're expecting people to be in awe and, and like, man, this is great. Who are you? Tell me more. Right? I think we're expecting people to fall at Jesus' feet and believe. But the next people we see don't react like that. In fact, Jesus dismisses the crowd and then we meet the next group of people who see Jesus. And it's clear that they don't see him. It's clear that in a way they are spiritually blind. We see this from verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. If we're expecting awe, shock, amazement that Jesus just fed 4,000, we're confronted with the complete opposite. Disbelief. Because as the Pharisees see Jesus... They're not in awe of him. They don't see him for who he is. Instead, they ask for a sign. Now, doesn't this read strange? Isn't this, isn't this sound odd? I mean, he's just fed 4,000 people. Isn't that a big enough sign that Jesus is a big deal? Going back a bit further, I mean, he's fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Going back a bit further, he's raised a dead girl back to life. Going back further, he's healed the paralyzed man. There's your sign. Why are they here asking for a sign? Right? It seems strange that they're asking for a sign. And what sign? Right? I mean, are they asking for something bigger? Do they want like a declaration from heaven like we saw in Mark chapter 1? This is my son of who I'm well pleased, God the Father said. Is that what they're looking for? I mean, are they looking for lightning strikes just all around the place going, you want a sign? Here's a sign. I kind of picture like animals flocking from all. That's a sign, right? I mean, is that what they're kind of asking for here? It's weird. It's strange. But we see they're not asking for a sign because they want to believe. Right? They're not asking for a sign to confirm their suspicions that maybe Jesus is a big deal. They're asking for a sign to test him. Right? They have already seen Jesus do big and powerful things, and yet in a way they didn't see. They didn't believe. And so here they're asking for a sign to trap him. Right? In their mind, they would finish the sentence, Jesus is a false teacher, or Jesus is a liar, or Jesus is a lunatic, or, or Jesus is just someone who gets in the way of God. So for them, I think what they're expecting to happen is Jesus go, okay, I'll give you a sign, right? God's going to do something, and then nothing happens, and then they can go, okay, see, he's not the guy that he said he was, and they can move on and keep doing their thing. So what does Jesus do when they ask for a sign? As they try and test him and trap him, does he enter that? He doesn't enter it, does he? I mean, he doesn't get these lightning strikes, doesn't get animals to come from all around the place. Doesn't lift himself up on a mountain from underneath himself and say, I am God, check this out. No, instead he is frustrated. He sighs deeply at them, sighs deeply and says, you're not getting a sign. No sign will be given to you. And then he gets in the boat and leaves. Now, why doesn't he give a sign? Right? Is Jesus the kind of guy that doesn't want to be known? Well, Jesus recognizes here who the Pharisees are. And what the Pharisees see, and it's clear they don't see anything. 
right? Blind people can't see what's in front of them. Even if Jesus did a sign, they still couldn't see it. So we see in this first group of people, they can't see, right? The Pharisees, they are blind to who Jesus is. Then we see the next group of people who at this stage of the game are blind as well. And this is the disciples who at this point of the game are blind as well. Jesus leaves the Pharisees, gets in the boat, and then we pick up the story in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves full of 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves full of 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Here, the the Pharisees are blind. We see this. They don't see what's in front of them. But at this stage, the disciples are blind as well. They also don't see what's in front of them. They also don't understand what's going on. They have someone who's doing amazing things, incredible things, powerful things, things only God can do, and yet they don't see. Now, we see this as we work through this passage. And as we read it, it really is as weird as it sounds to be. Okay, they get on the boat and they're talking about who brought one loaf of bread. Right? They're discussing that. Why did we only have one loaf of bread? Whose job was it to bring more bread? You told me, Peter, that I only needed to bring one loaf of bread. I thought you were bringing bread. John jumps in and says, I didn't know we were meant to bring bread. And then they just sit there and talk for hours and hours about bread. We don't know if that's how long they talked for, but that's kind of the vibe here. Right? You know the feeling when you go to a party, you didn't eat beforehand, and there's only cake, and you're like, I swear they said there was dinner as well. Right? This is the kind of space, it's hangry, it's hungry and angry, they're discussing who brought one piece of bread, who brought the loaf of bread, why didn't we bring more loaves of bread? Jesus enters in, in verse 15, and he says, be careful, right? he warns them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is saying, let's boycott the Pharisees' bakeries. That's what it feels like. They annoyed me, so let's stop going. Plus, they only take cash, and last time we got a pie and it was a little bit cold. Right? Let's just stop going to their bakeries. Let's do something else. On the surface, that's what it feels like. But as we understand this passage and as we read this, obviously Jesus is using a metaphor here to describe something bigger. And it was a metaphor that was used by other rabbis and teachers of the day. And the idea was the yeast, to to describe someone or say the yeast of the Pharisees, it's kind of their heart, right? Who they are, their decisions. And so in this case, he's warning them of the decision, the attitude to not see, to not believe what's in front of you or disbelief. right? So essentially in this moment, Jesus is saying, be warned, right, of the fact that you can see and not believe. Be warned of the attitude that when you see what Jesus is doing, you don't believe it. So Jesus says, right, watch out for that. Be careful of that. It is possible to see and not believe. How do the disciples respond to this? Well, this triggers them to talk about bread again. They get back into the discussion about bread and they say, it's because we have no bread. 
right? They miss it completely. They take something that Jesus said metaphorically and they understand it only as something that's physical and literal. And so Jesus slams them. I mean, he says, why are you still talking about the bread? Right? Why are you going on and on about the bread? Do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but don't hear? Are you blind? Are you deaf? Do you not understand? And then he says, like when we talk to, I mean, this is what it feels like anyway, when we talk to kids, right? And we make them answer. How many basketfuls when we fed the 5,000 did you pick up? I'm not going to give you the answer. You give me the answer. <laughs> 12, they say. What about the 4,000? How many left did, I, did we have? Seven. Then he says, do you still not understand, right? You can kind of see him shaking the disciples one by one. Stop talking about the bread. It's not about bread. I'm, I don't care that you don't have enough bread. Who cares? If there's, I mean, I can get more bread if you want more bread. It's not about the bread. This whole passage is about seeing and not believing. It's about being able to see what Jesus is doing and not understanding. Right, where we have eyes but can't see and ears that can't hear. And so what we see in the disciples, like the Pharisees before them, they don't understand who Jesus is. At this point, they can't see what's going on. Someone in front of them has done big, powerful things, and yet they don't see. It's possible to know about Jesus and not truly understand who he is. It's possible to see him and not see him. So, so this is the first group of people we have, the blind. Then the next group of people we have are the blurry. And we pick this up from this blind man in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led, the, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Same question he asked the disciples beforehand. Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now this passage sounds on the surface straightforward. I mean, Jesus heals a blind man. But there's some curious things about this as well, isn't there? I mean, it takes Jesus two attempts to heal this blind man. The first time, he spits in his eyes, which is gross. But I guess if your eyes are being restored, you'd take a bit of spit in the eyes. Heals him the first time, says, what can you see? And he says, it's blurry. I can see people, but they look like trees walking around. So then Jesus has another crack and the second go does it properly, and now this man can see clearly. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus hasn't had to do it like this before. It's not like with the paralyzed man, he said, all right, let's work on your arms first and then your legs. Hasn't done this before. This is strange that Jesus does it like this. So why? Why does Jesus heal in this way? And why does Mark put this story here for us in the middle of this section? Well, it's because what Mark is showing us and what Jesus is doing is a living example of how blind people see. Right? See, I don't know about you, but when I read the disciples and the Pharisees not seeing, I kind of feel like, what hope is there for me? I mean, I'm not as literate as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I didn't know the Old Testament enough, who the Messiah was, as they would have. 
I didn't get to walk with Jesus as the disciples did, ask him questions, see what he did. I didn't have their chance. So if they're blind, what hope do I have? But what Mark is showing us and what Jesus is showing us is where blind people go to get sight. And the way that this unfolds for this blind man, that he's blind, then he sees in a way that's blurry, and then clearly is the same way that it unfolds for the disciples. Because they're blind, but then in the next passage we see they're blurry, and then eventually when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, they see clearly. Right, So let's see how this unfolds for the disciples. Because in verse 27, we see this next scene with the disciples. Jesus and his disciples went on the villages, uh, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, "Who do people say I am?" They replied, "Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets." What about you? He asked, "Who do you say I am?" Now, let's just stop there for a second. Let's go back, Chris, for a second. In this moment, right? Let's think about what are we expecting from the disciples. The last time we saw the disciples, they were on a boat talking about bread. So in a way, I'm expecting here, when Jesus turns it to them and goes, what about you, that Peter says, oh, you're asking us because we have bread now. Or you're asking because we don't have any bread. Or you're asking where we got this bread from. Don't worry, we didn't get it from the fair. Like that's, that's kind of what it feels like, what we should expect from the disciples. But what do we see? We see Peter speaking. He answers, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, we can't understate how big it is that Peter calls Jesus the Messiah here. Messiah in the Old Testament is the anointed one, the king. And they were longing for the day when the king would come to save God's people. This was what they were hoping for. They were praying for it. They were pleading for it. If you've ever waited for anything in your life, this was that on steroids. They were pleading God, honor your promise, bring us the Messiah, bring us the king who would save God's people. Here now, Peter is declaring that Jesus is this guy. The Old Testament spoke about. He is the Messiah. He is the king who would save God's people. The first time in Mark that someone has declared this. This is a big deal that Peter has done this. Now, isn't it clear here that something from this moment and the boat scene has changed? Right? And this is why the blind guy is there to show us how this has changed. It's because Jesus has begun to give them sight. But what's also clear is that they don't yet get it fully. Peter doesn't fully understand, and we get this from the next verse. So verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's clear that Peter and the disciples can see in some sense who Jesus is, but it's also clear at the same time this sense of unclarity. They, they can't see. They're looking. They need clarity on this. There's a sense that their sight of Jesus is still blurry because Peter here was expecting a king who would come in power. Go to Rome, defeat Rome, and save Israel. 
That's what they were expecting. That's what Peter's expecting here. So when Jesus says, actually, that's not what's going to unfold, right? I'm not going to power in power to Rome, instead, humility to a Roman cross. Peter rebukes him and says, that's not how this is going to play out. So Jesus returns, serve, and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Big claim here. Now, Jesus is not saying you're literally Satan, not saying Peter is Satan, but instead saying in this moment when Peter's concerns are on the world, when Peter's concerns are that of man or humanity, in that moment, that's exactly where Satan wanted him. And so when he says, get behind me, Satan, he's saying, that's not the plan here. Right? You're thinking of man, not of God. And so we start to see again this picture of Jesus. Right? We saw with the blind, then with the blurry, but now we see it with the believing. Now this final section though, what we see as we look to this, in this, this group that we've called the believing, is Mark doesn't give us another set of char- uh, characters to look at or learn from, like he has this whole series. Instead, Mark turns it to the readers and the audience to us to start to say and ask this question, okay, what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And what Mark does for us and what Jesus does for us is he lays it all out there. He speaks plainly about who he is and what he came to do. He wants us to see clearly who he is. And we saw that in that passage that Peter got it wrong, where Peter got it wrong. We have the chance to get it right in those verses where he spoke about his death and resurrection, where he spoke about the fact that he would die that Jesus would die. But catch this, see this clearly. Jesus didn't die because it was some sort of accident. He didn't die because he was assassinated and had no choice in it. Instead, Jesus died on mission as he laid his life down. It was his decision. And we've seen this, haven't we, in this series. Week one, we saw it, that Jesus, unlike John the Baptist, died for a reason and a purpose. And that purpose was to fix the problem of sin. We saw week two, Jesus died for a reason. And that was to go head first into our fears so that we can know as Jesus defeats our greatest enemies in sin and death and disarms Satan, that we can know we have a shepherd who comforts us. We know that as Jesus died, we have him. And so we can say, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. We saw last week Jesus died on mission as with a purpose to take our place, our defilement. We saw this last week, our evil thoughts separate us from God. We deserve judgment. We deserve that. But Jesus died on the cross to take our place, to close the gap. He died so that we wouldn't have to die. This is why he died. This is the king that he is, right? You see this? He's speaking plainly about this. He's showing us this clearly. This is what type of person he is. This is what type of king he is. He is the king who will die. But he's not the king who will stay dead. Because he says, three days later, I will rise again. And three days later, he rose again. And he is the king who defeated death and sin and Satan and rose again, conquering those things. This is who Jesus is, right? He is not an ordinary teacher. He's not an example. He's not just some big 
guy in history. He is the king and the savior who died and rose again. This is clearly who he is. He speaks plainly of this. And so the question for us is then, who do we say he is? Not because we're worried about people's concerns, but as we see him clearly, as Jesus speaks plainly of this, who do we say he is? How do we finish that sentence? See, for some of us, you've, you've joined us in this series, or maybe you're just here today, and there's this kind of sense that you have this sense of Jesus, this idea of Jesus, but there's still some kind of blurriness to him. We'd love to help you see that and keep seeing that, seeing who Jesus is clearly. In fact, on the 5th of August, there's a Christianity course that's starting up again with Jayesh. We'd love to, if you want to know more about who Jesus is clearly, we'd love to help you in that. It's after church. I haven't talked to anyone, but we'll throw some free coffee in there. It'll be great. We can sit down and talk about that. But if you're here today, right, so that's for you if you're kind of unsure about Jesus. If you're here today, though, and you would go, okay, if I think of who Jesus is, if the way you're finishing that sentence is Jesus is King and Savior, the King and Savior who died and rose again, then the question for us is still, well, it's not just who is Jesus. The question is, what does it mean for me? If I'm saying then that Jesus is the King and the Savior, what does it mean for me to actually live like that? Well, as we finish this section, Jesus gives us clarity on that as well. He shows us clearly, he speaks plainly about what it means for us to live with Jesus as King and Savior. And we see that from verse 34. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now the kingdom of God coming with power there is him rising again from the dead. Now, now the question is, if we say that Jesus is the Savior and King who dies and rose or who died and rose again, what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus says here clearly, doesn't he? It means that if we call him Savior and King, then we need to pick up our cross, that we need to die and follow him. That's the idea of the cross. This is not just like a chain around your neck. In Rome, this was literally the picture of death. And so here, right, he's saying, if you want to follow me, you must die and follow me. Right? But then he says, but it's worth it. Right? This is eternally worth it. Now, we've got to think, contextually, this did mean that for some people they would die for their faith. In fact, as Mark is writing, he's writing to people who died for their faith. This is a comfort to them. Right? A comfort to them saying, even if you die for your faith, it will be eternally worth it. But for us, as we read it, the reality is that we probably won't this week die for our faith. So instead of being a comfort to us, this becomes a challenge for us that we must die to ourselves, 
die to our wants and our desires and live for Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that when we see him as king and savior who died and rose again, that our values shift. Our values move away from me and here and now to eternity. Right? That's why he says, what will, it, what will it gain you to forfeit your soul but gain the world? So when we see Jesus as king and savior, our values shift to eternity. Right now, um, I heard an illustration this week that uh, I think just speaks of this so well. Um, we were at a trivia night a few weeks ago, and they asked the question, when did Bitcoin begin? Now, if ever you have that question, the answer is 2009. Uh, that's the answer. But then the guy threw in some fun facts about Bitcoin. And uh, the fact that he said, or he was telling the story, in 2010, there's this guy, when Bitcoin was still not worth anything, who uh, traded or sold 10,000 bitcoins for two pizzas in 2010. Now, I did the research this week. On Thursday, those 10,000 bitcoins were worth 83 million US dollars. At its peak last year, that's worth 190 million dollars. Now, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. He didn't realize the value of it. But still, pretty hard to live with yourself and that decision after that because he sold riches for temporary joy. He sold riches for the most temporary joy, two pizzas. What's that? 20 minutes of food. And probably afterwards, pain and suffering into the night. But, but you see this picture here, don't you? He sold riches for temporary joy. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at here. When you see him as king and savior, it means that he's telling us what we have. He's showing us the value of what we've got. Eternity is riches, and it's so much more value than the temporary joy that we have here and now. Now, you might have a great life. You might get 80 years here and now where you live it up and you do whatever you want, where you can have everything that you want, where you get a family and all the good stuff. But in light of eternity, what Jesus is saying is if you give up eternity for that, you are selling your soul for gold. You're selling eternity for two pizzas. And so when we see Jesus as Savior and King, our values shift where we start making decisions, not based on what's going to be profitable for me in five to ten years, but decisions based on eternity. Okay, now in the last week here at Southside, we've seen people do this over and over again. We've seen this, we've witnessed this here in our church where people have made decisions not based on the present, on the world, but on eternity. From uni students who in this last week came to church and then served at youth, gave up their whole Sunday and then came to growth group in the middle of exam block. When the whole world is saying to them that the most important thing in these three weeks is that you do well in your exams, we have people who are saying, no, there's something more valuable. We had a, a couple this week who lost their only chance to hang out with each other, to come to growth group. Right there, one night that they could hang out. Now, why did they do that? It's because of what they value. Right? We saw people this week come to church and serve, give up their sleep and their time and their energy. Our music team this morning, our tech team, the prayer team, gave up the chance to hang out as a family together on a Sunday morning. 
give up their, maybe their one day of sleep to come and serve. Why? It's because of what they value. It's because they see there's something more significant. We saw mums this week come to playgroup and growth group with their kids despite being sleep-deprived and exhausted. Why? Because of what they value. We saw families this week take that time in their home to set the tone on Christ despite it being easier to watch the TV or just relax or sleep or whatever else. Why? It's because of what they value. We saw people this week give above and beyond to the point where it hurt. Why? Because of what they value in eternity. And a hundred other little ways we saw at Southside this week. But we do this because of what we see, because of what we see in Jesus and what we see is truly valuable. Right? Can, can you see, when we see Jesus, it doesn't just mean we know what to do. It means we know why we do it. It's because there's something eternally significant. It's because there's riches on offer here. But at the same time, while we've seen that this week, we need to be aware that we live in a culture where the tide is pushing us to see that this world is the most important thing. The message our kids get is that their education is the most important thing. The message that we get when we get jobs is that our money and our finances are the most important thing. We get this message over and over again that the world is the most important thing. And so we need to recognize that our culture is pushing against us. Our culture is trying to sell us that this temporary joy is worthwhile. And so we need to fight against that. We need to remember what it truly is and fight against the temptation to give up on our relationship with God for the temporary joy of Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. We need to fight the temptation to give up on, the, on our relationship with God because we want to watch TV we need to fight the temptation to give up on the fact that, yes, our school says education is king. We need to fight that and fight that temptation and teach our kids that actually there's something more important, that their faith is more important than their marks. And we need to realize that the tide is strong there. So we need to fight above and beyond that. We need to fight the temptation that says sport is more important that your social sport or your future job in sport is more important than eternal values, where the temptation is to give up on meeting with God's people or with our kids. The temptation is to allow them not to go to church or youth or whatever else it is because sport matters more. And to fight the temptation that our world says this is more important than what we have eternally. We need to fight that temptation because Jesus is showing us what is truly valuable. We won't have the excuse like the guy that sold his bitcoins. We know. We know what we have in Jesus. We see it. Selling our soul for gold is a pointless thing and a meaningless thing to do. And so when we see Jesus as our king and our savior, it means that our values shift. It means that we start recognizing that we are living for something so much better than anything this world has to offer. So as we finish this series, as we come to this end of this big section in Mark, we see plainly who Jesus is. The King, the Savior, who would die and rise again. 
Now we have to see who that is, not just as a fact, but as the truth that we live out, where we recognize that Jesus is truly better than anything this world has to offer. And so in a moment, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing the song that we've been singing in this series, Jesus is Better. And in the bridge of this song, we sing these words, In all my riches, Jesus is better. In all my comforts, Jesus is better. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. And the point in that moment, what we're singing, are not just words on a screen, but we're singing our anthem that Jesus is truly better than anything this world has to offer. And we want to know that in our heads and believe that in our hearts so that we are a people who are truly living for Jesus, who is our King and Savior who died and rose again. Let's pray and ask that God would help us in this. God, we thank you so much for what you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you, God, that you haven't stayed hidden, that you revealed yourself, that you spoke plainly of who you are. We pray, Lord, that as we think about this, that you would challenge us and that you would help us to truly see who Jesus is and to see how valuable what we have in him really is. And we ask, God, that you would help us to live this out in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.